Lord, we ask that you'll bless our study now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, today we are continuing on in Mark's Gospel, um, and I always think of Mark's Gospel as the shotgun gospel, because he's fast and he gets to the point, um, and we're going to continue that fast pace today. So, in the spirit of the fast-paced gospel whirlwind adventure that is the book of Mark, buckle your seatbelts and we're going to go through the story and you can think of it like we're going to be on a mini holiday and everybody's in a tour bus and we'll be going through the story and I'll be on the mic and I'll be trying to add some stuff as we're looking out the windows. The itinerary is going to cover the healing of Bartimaeus, the blind man, Jesus' triumphal entrance to Jerusalem, the cleaning of the cleansing of the temple, and the cursing of the fig tree. And the big picture on our map and the theme of the tour today is going to be Jesus' judgment on the nation of Israel for their blindness and for their unfruitfulness. And because of their blindness, because they're not recognizing Jesus as the Savior, and their unfruitfulness, because they're not bearing spiritual fruit. So, let's get the bus tour underway. And we'll start reading Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Probably handy to have your Bibles and read through. So, Jesus and his disciples come to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. My first thought when I was reading this was, why does Bartimaeus get named for the first blind guy who Jesus healed just a few chapters ago didn't get named? Um, And in fact, in the other Gospels, um, we don't find out his name at all. So I figured it must have been important, and I tried to suss out what was going on. So Bar means son of, and Timaeus was his dad. So son of Timaeus, which didn't really help us that much. Timaeus has two meanings, and they kind of seemed contradictory. So one, one meaning is worthy, and the other meaning is unclean. So we've got... But the blind beggar, whose name means son of one who is worthy and yet is also unclean. How can someone be worthy of honour and yet filthy and sinful? Through Jesus. So Bartimaeus represents us as the blind Gentiles, considered unclean, And yet Jesus considers us worthy of ransom. Okay, let's keep reading and we'll try and get further through this time. When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, we didn't get very far, but it's important. Why do we care that Jesus came from Nazareth for? We ask this now and they funnily enough asked it back then as well. So you might not know this, but Nazareth was this little rural town out in the sticks. How rural was it? It was so rural that it's not even in the Old Testament. That's pretty rural. 
the population, a few hundred people, I imagine it like Ayers Rock without the rock. (laughs) (laughs) And do you know what the people thought about this place? Not much. A world-famous rabbi teacher would not be expected to come from Nazareth, let alone the coming Messiah who they've been waiting for. It'd be like someone saying to you, did you hear the world's best brain surgeon is coming here and he's from Ayers Rock? And you'd be like, no way. There's not even a hospital there. How can the world's best surgeon be from there? And this is what Nathaniel said when he was told about Jesus for the first time. He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what does he get told? Come and see. What do we learn about Jesus from this title? Despite having no earthly resources or honour, he learned the scriptures and he could demonstrate his immense knowledge and authority because he was God. Okay, back on the road. We're cruising along. When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many scolded him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This part of the story always makes me really happy, sad, because you've got Bartimaeus, this filthy beggar, lying on the side of the road, and he's just screaming his lungs out for Jesus, and everybody is just telling him to be quiet. It's pretty powerful imagery, hey? What do the people around him do? What would you have done if you were there waiting to see Jesus and a special ceremony that you know is coming up? How would you feel if you were the beggar and you saw Jesus and you knew that this was the one chance in your life that you could be healed and you could be saved? And he shouts even louder. How good's that? Um, I remember when I was first convicted of my sin a few years ago and I was going through a really rough time and I was a complete wreck and I remember going to uni and I was working in this science lab and I felt unworthy and distraught and I didn't care who knew about it and my family could see it and my colleagues could see it but they just couldn't understand why I felt that way for Um, and they just told me basically to get over it. They were just like, like quite down basically. Um, I told one of my mates that I, how much I needed Jesus and how Jesus was real and he told all my other mates like, oh Nick's gone all churchy now and he's different. But when you're convicted of your sin and when you're brought to this low place where your pride has failed and you're lying on the side of the road and you're a wreck, that's when Jesus can help you. And isn't it amazing that we can shout to Jesus and we can shout even louder when we get told to shut up? Okay, enough about me. Back to the story. What was Jesus' response? Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Two quick things to say about this because the bus hasn't got far. One, Jesus is rebuking the crowd for their lack of compassion Jesus is loving. He puts probably the biggest event in all of Israel's history on hold because he loves this guy so much. 
Secondly, at first glance, it seems kind of funny what he says in a cruel way. Jesus says, hey, blind beggar, I'm here. Even though you're blind and it's crowded as anything, I want you to come to me. I was thinking about Daryl saying before, it's hard enough to be blind and to get through his cafe. Let's see what happens. Verse 49, part 2. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he is calling you. What does Bartimaeus do? So he threw off his cloak, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the road. A few things that I I found out here. One, we see that Bart, the blind beggar, comes to Jesus alone. You can't come on anybody else's coattails. You can't come because your family believes. Everyone comes by themselves. Secondly, we see what we bring to the table for our salvation. Nothing. What was the one thing that Bartimaeus probably owned? his coat, and what's he do with it? He just chucks it away. Um, I've read before that coming to Jesus is like going through one of those turnstiles when you're about to get on a subway, and if you try and hold on to or bring any of your worldly baggage with you, you can't come to him because you'll have your bags and you'll try and go through and they'll just crank up against the sides. You have to let go so that you can go through the turnstile. Um, now, a summary of, of Bartimaeus is our Gentile model of salvation. Um, just quickly, one, he was spiritually blind and in sin. Two, he recognised he was worthless in himself, but Jesus was his only hope, despite all the sass from the crowd. He immediately took his opportunity. He made a leap of blind faith towards Jesus. Jesus forgave him and restored him as a loving redeemer. What does Bart do after this? He is no longer Bart, the blind beggar. He is now Bart, the faithful follower. He saw clearly and he followed Jesus. And I always thought that Bartimaeus would have had a really unique perspective on the events in Israel because he hasn't been able to see anything for so long now And now he can see, and in his eyes, in one week, are going to see Jesus crucified on the cross. Okay, let's crank the accelerator. Um, So Jesus is about to show up at Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as they approached Jerusalem near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here soon. So they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and untied it. Some people standing there said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They replied as Jesus had told them and the bystanders let them go. 
So let's look out the windows again with what I've called Jesus' strange request. To the disciples, it must have really sounded like Jesus was asking them to steal a donkey. (laughs) And I think that was making them pretty nervous. Imagine if Jesus said to you today, hey, go into Queen Street Mall, as soon as you enter it, you'll see a brand new car parked there, never been driven before, bring it back here, oh, and if anyone asks, just say, oh, it's cool, Jesus needs it, we'll bring it back. (laughs) That would be a pretty scary, adrenaline-pumping prospect. It would take some faith in Jesus, hey? We see demonstrated here Jesus' omniscience, that he's all-knowing, and the whole story pans out exactly the way that he knew it was going to. Next part, verse 7, Then they brought that colt, the donkey, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Why was everyone throwing their cloaks off for? Because Bartimaeus had started a new trend. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought it was just a sign of reverence to recognise someone greater was here. And this is true when it was that, but this was an ancient practice to recognise and to welcome that their new king was here. The palm branches have a similar meaning as well. And speaking of prophecy, we're going to take our time travel bus to the future for a second and look at Revelation chapter 7, where we have a similar ceremony occurring. So John describes the scene for us. It's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands they were shouting in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And you know what's really cool about this story? It hasn't happened yet and we're actually going to be in the story with our sweet new resurrection bodies worshipping Jesus. That's pretty crazy, hey? Okay, we'll go back to history now, though. So Jesus turned up on a donkey, and people are putting out branches. From from, uh, Mark 11, verse 9, both those people who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. We thought about the unique perspective of Bartimaeus with his eyes before, and now we're going to think about the unique perspective from these people's lips, because right now they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is Jesus, the coming king, yet in one week, what are they going to shout? Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Okay, so Jesus is making his way through the crowd. And where does he go? Verse 11, Then Jesus entered Jerusalem 
and went to the temple. Why does he go to the temple for? So the temple is the spiritual centre of Israel's worship and the condition of the temple reflects the fruitfulness of Israel as a nation. And Jesus is going to the temple because he's going to suss it out and examine what the condition is like. What does Jesus look at when he rocks up at the temple? Verse 11, Jesus went to the temple and looked at everything. (laughs) So Jesus had the authority to judge, and in making that judgment, Jesus looks at everything. Nothing gets past Jesus. So Jesus has made his analysis on the condition of the temple and we're about to find out what the verdict is but he doesn't announce it here we move on to the next story Um, after looking around at everything he went out to bethany with the 12 since it was already late now the next day as they went out from bethany he was hungry jesus was human as well as god he had the same needs that we do after noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, leaves giving the appearance that there's going to be fruit on the tree, he went out to see if he could find some fruit on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I must confess that I used to think that Jesus just got really hangry here. Hangry is when you get so hungry that you get angry. Imagine if you, that you're starving, you've been on this massive walk, you see the fig tree in the distance, um, it's got leaves, it looks like there's going to be fruit on it, you get there and it's barren. That would be enough for me to be like, I've had it with you, tree. (laughs) That's it. But Jesus knew that there was not going to be any fruit on the tree already. So what was going on then? He was giving his verdict on the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is often a symbol used as the nation of Israel as well. So Israel has given this misleading appearance of bearing fruit, but really they are fruitless and full of hypocrisy. The Jerusalem leaders were meant to be spiritually productive, but had been found by the Messiah at his coming to be barren. The other point I wanted to make here was how Jesus made this judgment. We are told just as a parting note at the end, and the disciples heard it. I get the impression that this was not a loud, angry proclamation that he's directing towards the disciples. I don't think that he was even talking to them, and I don't think the disciples actually knew what was going on at the time. I imagine that Jesus was saying this to himself, and the disciples were intently watching him and overhearing Jesus sadly lamenting the fate of the nation of Israel. And I think of as well of Matthew 23, where Jesus similarly laments after pronouncing his judgment on Israel. 
And I'll just read this verse. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. Let's read on and see what Jesus' judgment is after this verdict. Verse 15, Then they came to Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Then he began to teach them and said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. What does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus was tough. Jesus had been a carpenter in a time before utes, power tools and apprentices. He was probably a fit, powerful, stocky guy, unlike the the paintings that we see of him. And we focus a lot on Jesus' humility and meekness, but here we see a bold, powerful, courageous Jesus entering the temple, WWE wrestling style, with a whip that he's made out of some ropes, and he lets them have it. This is Jesus who, in the Old Testament, wrestles all night with Jacob, and then at the end of it, he gives him a blessing... But he says, look, Jacob, I must confess, I've been going a bit easy on you. Don't believe me. Look, I'll just touch the socket of your hip. Just touch your hip and boom, your hip's dislocated. (laughs) It's out of the socket and your tendons are ruptured and you're going to have a limp. And the next verse, Jacob had a limp. How tough was Jesus? Imagine what a massive business enterprise this had become. Imagine all the security they had there to protect their prophets. Jesus shows up as a one-man army and he just turns the tables and boots them out. This is giving us a taste of Jesus' powerful, righteous wrath, the wrath of God. What did Jesus find at the temple that made him so angry? So a few things. Firstly, the money changes. I never really understood the significance of this, but if you were a Jew and you wanted to worship at the temple, you had to pay um, a half-Jewish shekel coin to get in. But you're living in a Roman empire. You might be getting paid in Roman currency, so you need to change your money into the Jewish money to get in. Um. The money changers shouldn't have been at the temple at the first place. And like at the airport, if you want to change your currency, they would rip you off. (laughs) Why were they allowed to operate at the temple, which was meant to be holy for? Because the priests and the leaders were getting kickbacks for the money that they were making. Um, Similarly... There were various times when you'd need to bring an animal sacrifice to the temple. And I've had it explained to me that this kind of story, which I'm about to tell, might have been the way that it was kind of supposed to be done, like the correct heart. 
So imagine you're a child and you're excited because, you know, today is a really special day when your family is going to show God how much you love him and how sorry you guys are for your sins that you've committed. So your dad takes the whole family out and your mission for the day is to find the perfect bull which you're going to sacrifice. And you know that it has to be without blemish. So you go to the best farm in your community and all your brothers and sisters are there as well and someone's like, that one. And then someone else is like, no, no, the horn, the horn's all rubbish, we can't use that one. And someone else is like, your brother's like, that one. And then someone says, no, he's got a cut, there's a cut on its back, so we can't use that one either. Um, And so you guys look for hours and finally you found this perfect specimen, this perfect beast that you're going to be able to sacrifice. And so the next day, your your dad buys it, put on a rope or whatever they do and carry it away. And the next day, you start the trek to the temple together and you're excited because you're going to go sacrifice this perfect sacrifice to God in love to propitiate for your sins. So contrast this to the people who were just rocking up at the temple, going to the dove shop, getting whatever dove got given to them, safe in the knowledge that the priests were not going to turn the sacrifice away because they were getting a share of the cuts from the dove shop as well. To summarise, the merchants and the leaders were thieves extorting the people, and the people's heart was not in the right place. Why was Jesus' response so dramatic for? Because Jesus was holy. Jesus is holy. The temple was meant to be holy. It was meant to be a place of prayer and reverence for God. Jesus had come as the awaited Messiah. He'd evaluated the nation And here he was delivering God's judgment, like a prophet from the Old Testament, but so much more than a prophet, against the desecration of the temple. And then lastly, we see here, how do Israel's leaders respond to Jesus' judgment? So reading from verse 18, the chief priests and the experts in the law heard it, and they wholeheartedly repented... No, they considered how they could assassinate him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. Let's quickly compare their response to Bartimaeus' response. In contrast to Bartimaeus' humility and his love for and his reliance on Jesus, the Israelite leaders are full of pride full of hatred and jealousy because of Jesus' implicit authority and power. Rather than follow Jesus and receive blessing, they plot to kill Jesus and are cursed. Okay, so this is the last stop on the tour bus today and we're doing a Yui, whipping a Yui and we're going back past the fig tree again. Um, Verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Um, We see this foreshadowing the destruction of the temple that would follow in a few years. 
Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. We see here that Peter remembers only after he's seen the tree, which reinforces that idea for me that they didn't grasp the significance of what was going on. It would certainly be in keeping with Peter's character for him to suddenly see that the tree is dead and then be like, Jesus, I can't believe it. That tree that you cursed actually died. What do you think that Jesus would say next? I would expect him to say, Yes, Peter, this tree represents fruitless Israel, which I have cursed, and will be replaced by a new covenant. What does Jesus actually say? Verse 22, Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if someone says to this mountain... Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Does this mean, like I used to think that it meant, that we all have secret, powerful, psychic mind powers, and if we can just muster up enough faith, that we could pick up the glasshouse mountains and chuck them into the ocean? Well, if you have a crack at it, the Savi, please do not miss, because Lauren and Austin's house is right next to the Glasshouse Mountain, and they've been renovating and working so hard on it. No, Jesus, um, so Jesus is cutting to the heart of the problem with Peter and the heart of the problem with the nation of Israel. He's rebuking them for their lack of faith. He goes on to say and explain how faith is an empty lip service, but it's demonstrating it in all aspects with love. So, oh, the other thing as well was, it's funny that this incredible miracle, so marvellous, was exactly the kind of thing that the Israelite leaders had been hitting up Jesus to perform over and over again and he just declined over and over again and here he's demonstrated it for us and for the disciples as well. That's pretty special, hey? So the last point is Jesus' message for the disciples and for us is that if we have our trust and purpose aligned with God then powerful things can happen. Verse 24, For this reason I tell you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours whenever you stand praying. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. This is what faith that changes the world looks like. This is what Jesus' faith looked like. How do we grow in faith and move mountains? We need to love God, talk to God, depend on God, align our desires with God's desires, love and forgive each other, and most importantly, come to Jesus for forgiveness of our sins.
Let's finish in prayer. Dear Lord and Father God, we love you so much. We thank you so much that Jesus paid the price for our sins and that he paid them once and for all. Lord, please help us to have hearts of faith like Jesus. And we pray that like him, we pray that our church here would have the faith to move mountains. Amen.